Chapter 15 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Twas there that we parted. 1. Archie shook his head with a little smile, which said that resistance would be of no use, and that their only hope lay in keeping perfectly quiet. But Ewan would not take the weapon back. The men outside could be heard fumbling over the door for the means of opening it, which, naturally, they could not find. How oh, curse it! There's no way to open this door. Kicks and blows were bestowed upon it. Oh, come out of it, rebel. If you're in there, added the other voice with a snigger. Oh, there ain't no means of knowing that till we get the door open, said the first voice. If there was a lock, we could blow it open, but there ain't none. And do you stay and watch the place, and then, and I'll be off and fetch the captain. He ain't far off now. And while you're doing that, and the rebel will burst out and murder me and be off. Maybe, and too, there's more than this Dr. Cameron in there. You're a good plucked one, ain't you? observed the first voice scornfully. You go for Captain Craven, then, and I'll warrant no one comes out of this hut without getting something from this that'll stop his going far. By the sound, he smacked the butt of his musket. How oh, good. I'll not be long, then, I promise you. And the speaker could be heard to run off, and the man who remained, either to keep up his courage or to advertise his presence, and began to whistle. Ewan and his cousin looked into each other's eyes, fearing even to whisper, and each read the same answer to the same question. If they attempted to break out and run for it, before the captain and the main body came up, it was beyond question that, since they could not suddenly throw open the door, but must first pull down their barricade at the cost of time and noise, and the men outside, forewarned by their movements, could shoot one or both as they dashed out. Moreover, wounded or unwounded, and they would undoubtedly be in worse case in the open, and the alarm once given by a shot, and then if they remained perfectly silent, as close as weasels in their hiding place. And there was always a chance that the officer, when he came, would pooh-pooh the idea of anyone's being inside the deserted-looking little structure, and would not have the door broken open. Even, perhaps, a chance that he would not bring his men here at all. Oh, but it was a hard thing to do, to sit there and wait to be surrounded. It was too hard for Ewan. After four or five minutes, he put his lips to Archie's ear. I'm going to open the door and rush out on him, he breathed. I have another pistol. He will probably chase me, and then you can get away. He had brought off that same maneuver so successfully once. Why not again? Oh, but Archie clutched his arm firmly. Oh, no, you shall not do it. And, in any case, I think it is too late. For the musician outside had seized in the middle of a bar, and next instant was to be heard shouting, This way, sir, in the clearing here. Then there was the tramp of a good many feet coming at the double. 
what did it matter in that moment to Ewan if the cause were once more sinking in a bog of false hopes? And for the safety of the man beside him, whom he loved, he would have bartered any levies that ever were to sail from Prussia or Sweden. But the issue was not in his hands. Why were we so crazy as to come in here, he murmured under his breath. Oh, God, that I'd never seen this hut. Archibald Cameron had loosed his arm. He still held the pistol, but in a manner which suggested that he did not mean to use it. From the orders which they could hear being given, the hut was now surrounded. And the door was then pushed at hard from without, but, as before, when it had been attempted, it would not budge an inch. "'Did you hear any sound within, while you kept watch, Hater?' asked the officer's voice. "'No, sir, I can't say that I did.' "'Yet the door is evidently made fast from within. Well, "'It is difficult to see how that can be, unless someone is still inside. "'And there's no window or other opening, is there, "'out of which a man could have got after fastening the door.' A no, sir, was shouted, apparently from the back of the hut. For by the hole there'll be in the thatch for letting out the reek, sir, suggested another voice, and a Scottish one, at that. Oh, but a man would hardly get out that way, answered the officer. No, and there's nothing for it but to break in the door. Two or three musket butts were vigorously applied with this intention, but in another moment the officer's voice was heard ordering the men to stop, and in the silence which ensued could be heard saying, Aye, an excellent notion, and then we shall know for certain and save time and trouble. One of you give him a back. The two motionless men on the bench inside looked dumbly at each other. What was going to happen now? A scrambling sound was heard against the log wall of the hut, and Archie pointed mutely upwards. They were sending a man to climb up and look in through the hole left for the smoke. Ewan ground his teeth, and they had neither of them thought of that simple possibility. Oh, the game was up, then, and they could do nothing against such a survey. His cousin, however, possibly from previous experience in skulking, advised in dumb show one precaution. Pulling Ewan's sleeve to attract his attention, he bowed his head until it rested on his folded arms, thrusting his hands at the same moment out of sight. For a moment, Ewan thought that the object of this posture was to escape actual identification, and not very probable anyhow, in the semi-darkness. Then he realized that its purpose was that the lighter hue of their faces and hands should not be discernible to the observer. For a second or two he dallied with an idea which promised him a grim satisfaction, and that of firing upwards at the blur of a face which would shortly, he supposed, peer in at that fatal aperture in the thatch. But to do that would merely be to advertise their presence. So he followed Archibald Cameron's example, and they sat there, rigid and huddled in upon themselves, and trusting that in the bad light they would, after all, and be invisible. 
and, if so, then, to judge from the officer's words, the latter would be convinced of the emptiness of the hut, and would draw off the party without breaking in the door. Oh, God, if it might be so, if it might be so. The scrambling sound had reached the thatch now. Half of Ewan's mind was praying for Archie's life, and the other wrestling with a perverse inclination to glance up. And, queerly mingled with that impulse, came a memory of his childish interpretation of the text, Thou, God, seest me, when he used to picture a gigantic eye looking down through his bedroom ceiling. Eternities of waiting seemed to spread out, and then, abruptly, and to collapse like a shut fan, with a jubilant shout from above. He's there, Captain, and there's two of them. I can see them plain. By the sound, the speaker slid down with the words from his post, and, almost simultaneously, too, came another blow on the door and the ritual command. Open in the king's name. The cousins both lifted their heads now, and Archie, hopeful to the last, laid a finger on his lips. The order was repeated, and then, as if uncontrollably, blows began to rain on the door. "'Come out and surrender yourselves,' called the officer's voice sternly, and another shouted. "'Use that log there, you fools, and it is heavier than the butts.' And yet another cried excitedly, "'What if we was to fire the thatch, sir?' And, at that, quite suddenly, the battle-madness of the highlands and the mirachaha came upon Ewan Cameron, and he went berserk. This was to be a trapped beast, an otter at bay. An otter, any beast that shows fight, then. Did the redcoats anticipate coming in unhindered to take them, or that they, highlanders both, would tamely suffer themselves to be burnt out? He sprang up. Archie had got up, too, and was holding out his hand to him and saying, and through the hail of blows upon wood, which almost drowned his words, "'Oh, my dearest lad, I hope they'll let you go free.' And from his kinsman's next action, this seemed unlikely in the extreme. And thrusting the second pistol at Dr. Cameron, with, I'll "'Take this, too. I'll need both hands,' Ewan seized the great rusty axe from the corner, and flung himself against the barricaded portal, just as one of the upended logs which wedged it slipped and fell, dislodged by the blows under which the door was quivering, and set against it the living prop of his own shoulder. Oh, Ewan, Ewan, besought his companion in great distress. It is useless, it is worse than useless. My time has come. But Ardroy did not even seem to hear him, leaning with all the might of his strong body against the door, his right hand gripping the axe, his left arm outspread across the wood trying to get a hold on the logs of the wall beyond the hinges. And suddenly a crackling above showed that the suggestion just made had been carried out, and the roof thatch fired, probably by a brand flung upwards. The thatch, however, was damp and burnt sullenly. Yet, in a moment or two, some eddies of smoke, caught by the wind, and drifted in through the aperture. And then the flame caught, perhaps a drier patch, and a sudden thick wave of smoke, 
acrid and stifling, drove downwards in the gloom as though looking for the fugitives. But already the door was beginning to splinter in several places. The assailants seemed to guess that it was buttressed now with the body of one of the besieged. "'Stand away from that door, you within there,' shouted the officer, "'or I fire.' Oh, "'Fire, then, and be damned to you,' said Ewan under his breath. "'Get back, Archie, get back.' But instead of a bullet there came stabbing through one of the newly made little breaches in the door, like a snake, a tongue of steel, a bayonet or sword. It caught Ewan just behind and below the shoulder pressed against the door. A trifle more to one side, and it might have gone through the armpit into the lung. As it was, it slid along his shoulder blade. Involuntarily, Ardroy sprang away from the door, as involuntarily dropping the axe and clapping his right hand to the seat of the hot, searing pain. "'Are you hurt?' exclaimed his cousin. "'Oh, Ewan, for God's sake!' But they are not going to take you as easily as they think, said Ewan between his teeth, and with the blood running down his back under his shirt, he pounced on the fallen axe again. And the door shivered all over, and by the time he had recovered his weapon, he saw that it was giving, and that nothing would save it. He pushed Archie, still imploring him to desist, roughly away. Oh, keep out of sight, for God's sake, he whispered hoarsely and, gripping the axe with both hands, stood back a little, the better to swing it, and also to avoid having the door collapse upon him. In another moment it fell inwards with a bang, and a noise of rending hinges, and there was revealed, as in a frame, the group of scarlet-clad figures with their eager faces, the glitter of weapons, and the tree-trunks beyond. And to those soldiers who had rushed to the dark entrance, Cameron of Ardroy also was visible against the gloom and smoke within, towering with the axe ready, his eyes shining with a light more daunting even than the weapon he held. And they hesitated and drew back. And the officer whipped out his sword and came forward. Put down that axe, you madman, and surrender Archibald Cameron to the law. "'Archibald Cameron is not here,' shouted back Ewan. "'But you come in at your peril.' Nonetheless, whether he trusted in his own superior quickness with a slighter weapon, or thought that the rebel would not dare to use his, Captain Craven advanced. And neither of these hypotheses would have saved him, though he was saved, luckily for Ewan, and for the Highlander in his transport had forgotten the small proportions of the place in which he stood, and his own height and reach of arm. And the smashing two-handed blow which he aimed at the Englishman never touched him. With a thud which shook the doorway, the axe buried itself in the lintel above it, and, as Ewan with a curse tried to wrench it out, and the haft, old and rotten, came away in his hand, leaving the head embedded above the doorway, and himself weaponless. As he saw the axe sweeping down towards him, the young officer had naturally sprung back, and now, before Ewan had time to recover himself, the sergeant rushed past his superior and seized Ardroy round the body, and trying to drag him out. As they struggled with each other, all danger from the axe being now over, another man slipped in, 
got behind the pair and raised his clubbed musket. Archie sprang at the invader and grabbed at his arm, and though he only half caught it, his act did diminish the fierce impact of the blow and probably saved Ewan from having his head split open. As it was, the musket butt felled him instantly. His knees gave, and with a stifled cry, he toppled over in the sergeant's hold, his weight bringing the soldier down with him. But the redcoat got up again at once, while Ewan, with blood upon his hair, lay face downwards across the fallen door, the useless axe shaft still clutched in one hand. And it was over his motionless body that Archibald Cameron was brought out of his last refuge. Two. Inversnade, said Ewan to himself in a thick voice. Inversnade on Loch Lomond. That is where I must go. Which is the way, if you please? He had asked the question, it seemed to him, of so many people whom he had passed, and not one had answered him. Sometimes it was true, and these people bore a strong resemblance to trees and bushes, but that was only their cunning, because they did not want to tell him the way to Inversnade. He was not quite sure who he himself was, either, nor indeed what he was doing here, wandering in this bare, starlit wood, stumbling over roots and stones. But at least he understood why Ewan Cameron had thought him drunk when he had only received a blow on the head. Oh, poor Hector! Oh, poor Hector, he repeated, putting up a hand to it. It was bandaged, as he could feel. Oh, who had done that? And Dr. Kincaid? But he could not see Loch Trigg anywhere. This was a wood, and the wood people refused to tell him the way to Inversnade. It was not very dark in the wood, however, for it was a clear, windy night, and the starlight easily penetrated the stripped boughs of it, only under the pines were their pools of shadow. It was now some time since Ewan had discovered that he was lying out in the open, under a tree, and no longer sitting in that little hut which he faintly remembered, where Archie and he had been together one day. Some time since he had got with difficulty to his feet, had lurched to that very hut, and, holding on tight to the doorway, had looked in at its black emptiness and wondered why the door lay on the ground. Yet it was while he stood propped there, and that the name of Inversnade had come to him with an urgency which he could not interpret, and he had turned at once in what he felt was the direction of Loch Lomond. He was in no state to realize that it was much less the absence of a warrant against him than the impossibility of transporting him, in his then inert condition, over miles of the roughest country to Inversnade, which had saved him, in spite of the resistance which he had offered, from being taken there as a prisoner himself. Ah, here was a tree or bush of some kind, covered with red flowers, holding a lantern. How very odd, that. No two of them, both with lights. The first was a female bush, a rose tree by the look, and one must be polite to it. He tried to doff his hat, but he had none. Oh, madam, will you tell me the shortest way to Inversnade? How oh, the kind bush replied that she would take him there, 
and then she drew an arm through his, while the other lantern-bearing tree did the same. And so, at last, he found someone to help him on his journey. "'Oh, he's clean-crazed, James,' said Mrs. Stewart, showing an anxious face above a red-and-green flowered shawl, as she looked round the lurching figure which she was guiding, at the man who was performing the same office on the other side. "'How oh, I don't know what we're going to do with him, now that we've found him.' "'I'll put him to bed, and gar him bide quiet,' responded the practical James. Oh, "'Hard up, sir. You may lift your feet a wheen higher, if you please.' Oh, I remember now. The blade came off the axe, said Ewan suddenly, his eyes fixed as though he were seeing something ahead. He had been silent for some time, though talkative at first. Oh, if it had not, I should have killed that officer, and some of the other redcoats, too, perhaps. Aye, I make no doubt of it, agreed James Stoddard soothingly, and they went on again while behind the three pattered the little barefoot girl whom the soldier had chased that afternoon. It was she who, having hung about in the wood instead of going home, had played Mercury and had given Mrs. Stewart, already horrified by the news of Dr. Cameron's capture, and the further tidings that the other gentleman had been left lying as if he were dead at the spot of the disaster. Yet, though she had been afraid to go near him, she reported having seen him move, on that, Mrs. Stewart had summoned the only person likely to be of use, and James Stoddard, her gardener and factotum, and had set out for the hut in the wood. Oh, "'I doubt this is not the way to Loch Lomond,' said Ewan, stopping dead all at once. "'Madam, you are misleading me, and that is worse than not answering.' He looked down at Mrs. Stewart rather threateningly. "'A oh, man,' said James Stoddard stoutly and dinner haver, but trust the lady. She kens where to take you. Come on now, we're gay near the place. And this was true, in the sense which he gave to the phrase, for Ewan's previous wanderings in the wood had all the time been leading him back in the direction of the house above the Calaire. Oh, come on, Mr. Cameron, added Mrs. Stewart gently. My name is Grant, retorted Ewan with some irritation. Hector Grant, an officer in the French service. And, under his breath, he promptly began to sing snatches of Malbrouck. But when he got to Ne sais qu'on reviendra, he broke off. Yes, he's gone, and God knows when he will return. Madame a sa tour monte, it says. Will you go up into your tower, madame, to look out for him? But there was a man who looked in, through the roof, that is not in the song. He wrinkled his brows and added, like a pettish child, oh, When shall we be through this wood? I'm so weary of it. Yet for the rest of the night he walked in it, always trying to find the way to Loch Lomond, long after Mrs. Stewart and James Stoddard had somehow got him into the house and into the bed which Archie Cameron had occupied but the night before. And not until she had him lying there, still babbling faintly of doors and axes and eyes in the roof and in Versnade and Lochtrig, and also of a stolen horse and some letter or other, and once or twice of his brother-in-law, Ewan Cameron, did Mrs. Stewart, just outside the room, bring forth her pocket-handkerchief. How oh, the doctor betrayed and taken, 
This gentleman that tried to save him, clean broken his wits. Oh, James, what a weary day's work. And to think that but this morning I was baking, and the bread never came forth better. Had I the second sight, as I might have, being Highland. Or if you had it, ma'am, broke in James Stoddard. Not that I believe any has it, and tis an idle and mischievous superstition. You and the laird would never have taken the doctor into the house, and you'd have been spared all this stramash. But Mrs. Stewart was already drying her eyes. Well, if it comes to that, she retorted, with spirit, a body might think it wiser never to have been born, and that would be a poor choice. Oh, there's a man will be wishing the night he had not been, I'm thinking, observed the gardener uncompromisingly, and that's Dr. Cameron. Oh, Dr. Cameron will be wishing no such thing, returned his mistress. Oh, he's a brave man, and used to running risks, though he'll be grieving indeed, for the blow his taking is to the prince. Ah, oh, me! What will the laird say when he hears the news? Ha! Huh, said her downright companion. And the doctor will be grieving for more than Prince Charlie. He cans well, and they'll hang him, the English. Oh, nonsense, James, retorted Mrs. Stewart. The English have not sufficient cause nor evidence against him. He has done nothing they can lay their fingers on. But no doubt they'll put him in prison, and for long enough, I fear. Nay, you'll see, ma'am, he'll not bide long in prison, predicted James Stoddard, shaking his head with a certain gloomy satisfaction. And yet, Presbyterian and Lowlander, though he was, he was perfectly staunch to his master's political creed, and no tortures would have drawn any admissions from him. How a kind and bonny gentleman, too, and the doctor, he went on, but for all he never said aught, as he went about his business in these parts, whatever it was, he can't find what would happen him if the redcoats catched him. I saw it, Wiles, in his eye. You have too much imagination, James Stoddard, said Mrs. Stewart a trifle severely, and most unjustly. Turning from him, she tiptoed back into the room for a moment. I think the poor gentleman is quieting down at last, she reported, returning. I shall go to bed for a while. Do you sit with him and give him a drink, if he asks for it? And for God's sake, hold your tongue on the subject of the doctor's being hanged. Oh, I've no need to hold it, responded the irrepressible James. Oh, if the gentleman did not ken it too, and over well, would not he have kept his skin hale on his back, and his head from yon muckle dunt it's gotten? End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Bronster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. The Door in Arlington Street. 1. The trees of St. James's Park this May afternoon made a bright green canopy over the hooped and powdered beauties who sailed below over the gentlemen in their wide-skirted coats and embroidered satin waistcoats, the lap-dogs and the sedan-chairs and the attendant black boys and footmen, and also, since spring-leaves flutter equally above the light-heart and the heavy, over a tall, quietly-dressed young man in a brown tie-wig 
who was making his way, with the air of looking for someone, among the loungers in the birdcage walk. Of the glances which, despite his plain attire, more than one fine lady bestowed upon him, he was completely unconscious. He was too unhappy. The weeks of Ewan's convalescence at Glenbucky had been bad, but this was worse. And to come to London directly one was physically fit for it, only to find that no scheme of real value was on foot to save Archibald Cameron from the fate which seemed to be awaiting him. Taken from Inversnaid to Stirling, and from Stirling to Edinburgh Castle, Dr. Cameron had been brought thence with a strong escort to London, arriving in the capital on the 16th of April, and the very anniversary of Culloden. He had been examined the next day before the Privy Council at Whitehall, but it was common knowledge that they had got from him neither admissions nor disclosures, and he had been taken back a close prisoner to the Tower. And that was nearly a month ago. At first, indeed, his bandaged head on the pillow which had been Archie's, Ewan had known little about past or present. Mrs. Stewart, aided by Peggy, so Peggy herself was convinced, had nursed him devotedly, and the task had perhaps helped her to forget her own anxiety on her husband's account, for Duncan Stewart had been arrested as he was returning from Perth. Luckily, however, for Ewan, once Mrs. Stewart's person was secured, his house had not been searched. But a considerable harvest of suspects had been reaped, as Ewan was defined when he came perfectly to himself. For his own cousin, John Cameron of Fassifern, Lochiel's and Archie's brother, had been imprisoned, and Cameron of Glen Nevis as well, and there was glee in Whig circles, where it was recognized what a blow to a dying cause was Archibald Cameron's capture. Of Loch Dorney, there was no news, but a warrant had been issued against him. Ewan himself, who had arrived in London but the day previously, had now come to St. James's Park merely to search for a Scottish Jacobite gentleman of his acquaintance, one Mr. Galbraith, who, on inheriting a small estate from an English relative, had settled in England and had a house in Westminster. Had he not been told that Mr. Galbraith was walking here with a friend, Ewan would not have chosen so gay a promenade. It was the first time that he had ever been in London, and, though he was not unaccustomed to cities, knowing Paris well, and not to speak of Edinburgh, he seemed to feel here, and to resent, an unusual atmosphere of well-to-do assurance and privilege. Even the trees had not to struggle out with difficulty in this place as in the north. None too soon for his wishes, he got sight of the elderly Mr. Galbraith at a distance, talking earnestly to a tall, thin gentleman with a stoop. Just before the Highlander reached them, this gentleman took his leave, and Mr. Galbraith came on alone, his head bent, his hands holding his cane behind his back so deep in thought that he almost ran into Ewan. Oh, I beg your pardon, sir. Oh, why, it is Mr. Cameron of Ardroy. He held out his hand. Oh, what are you doing in London? I'm very glad to see you again, however, very glad. Ewan glanced round. No one was within earshot. Well, I've come to try what I can do for my unfortunate kinsman in the tower. Oh, it must be possible to do something. 
You have studied law, Galbraith. You can tell me of what worth is any evidence which can be brought against him at his trial. Oh, at his trial, repeated Mr. Galbraith, with an intonation which you and found strange. Oh, but then some noisy bow went past, and he stopped, took Ewan's arm, and piloted him to a more secluded spot where a hawthorn tree invited to a seat on the bench below it. But they did not sit down. Oh, Dr. Cameron will not be so fortunate as to have a trial, resumed Mr. Galbraith. You've not heard that. But no, I've only just heard it myself this afternoon. I was even now discussing it with a friend from the temple. No trial, stammered Ewan. But Mr. Galbraith, in Great Britain an accused man must have a trial. It is illegal. It... Oh, it is perfectly legal in this case, said Mr. Galbraith gravely. Have you forgotten that Dr. Cameron's attainder of 1746 has never been reversed? He will be brought up quite soon now, it is thought, and for sentence to be pronounced. And the sentence will probably take its course. A gust of wind shook down some hawthorn petals between them, and Ewan's eyes followed them to the ground. You mean to say, and he found a difficulty in speaking, that he will be put to death on a charge seven years old for a course of action on account of which so many have since made their peace and been amnestied. Oh, but he has never made his peace nor been amnestied. He was exempted from the act of indemnity, as you know, because he did not surrender himself in time. Oh, surely, if he is your kinsman, you must always have known that, Ardroy. Oh, I knew, naturally, that he was exempted from the act. But to proceed to this extremity is iniquitous, said Ewan hotly, unworthy even of the elector and his parasites, and to deny a man a fair trial. Mr. Galbraith put his hand on his arm. Oh, my dear Ardroy, remember where you are, and be careful of your language. You will not help your kinsman by getting yourself arrested. Come home with me now and we will talk the matter over quietly. They left St. James's Park and its throngs in silence, and the beauty of the trees in the sunlight was hateful to Ewan, and the sunlight itself was hateful, and these laughing, careless men and women in their bright clothes, more hateful still. And they were of the same race, too, as the Crown lawyers who were going to do this heartless thing under a show of legality. And yet, for all the resentment in his heart, through which throbbed the long-memoried and vengeful Celtic blood, there was also a voice there to which he did not wish to listen, appealing to the innate sense of justice which had come to him from some other strain, telling him that the English could hardly be blamed for using this weapon ready to their hand, if they considered Archibald Cameron so dangerous a foe to their peace. And, again, another, as sombre and hollow as the wind in a lonely quarry, whispering that this was what he had always feared. In Mr. Galbraith's comfortable dark-panelled house in Westminster, Ardroy talked little. He listened. No, said his compatriot, and there had not been a great deal of interest shown. When Dr. Cameron was brought to London in April, so many people being out of town with the Duke, 
horse racing at Newmarket. Should popular feeling be sufficiently aroused, it was possible that pressure might be brought to bear on the government. As to why the authorities preferred to rely upon the old sentence of attainder rather than to try Dr. Cameron for treason, it was said, and very secretly. And here Mr. Galbraith, in his own library, dropped his voice and glanced round. It was said that the government had sufficient evidence to hang him if he were brought to trial, but did not wish to use it, because to do so would probably reveal the source through which it was acquired. I should not have thought their hands so clean, and that they need hold back for that, commented Ewan scornfully. His host shook his head. Oh, that is not the reason for their reluctance. Yet, mind you, Ardroy, this is but a theory, and whispered only in corners at that. The government are said to have the evidence from an informer whose identity they do not wish known. Whoever he may be, he is either too highly placed or too useful to expose. And disgust and wrath fought together in his hearer. An informer. Bah. But yes, there has been treachery. I know that well. I wish I had the wringing of the scoundrel's neck. But he is, I think, some man up in Perthshire. In Scotland, at any rate. And the government are so tender of him that they do not wish his identity disclosed. If Dr. Cameron is sacrificed, I think it will not be impossible to find him, protected or no. But that's for later on. Now, Mr. Galbraith, what do you think of the chances of a rescue from the Tower? Oh, I think nothing of them, said the Scot emphatically. A rescue is impossible. An escape only feasible by some such stratagem as Lady Nithsdale employed to save her husband after the fifteen, and such a stratagem has a very small chance of succeeding the second time. Now, the only hope is that, for whatever reason, the government should see fit to commute the sentence, which is, I fear, sure to be pronounced. You'll stay and sup with me, I hope, Ardroy, for I have some friends bidden, with whom I should like to make you acquainted. Tomorrow evening, if you will allow me, I shall take you to the White Cock in the Strand, and present you to some of those who frequent it. It may be, said Mr. Galbraith somewhat doubtfully, that in the multitude of counsellors there is wisdom. 2. It was late, after eleven o'clock, when Ewan left Mr. Galbraith's house in Westminster, and started to walk back to Half Moon Street, off Piccadilly, where he lodged over a vintner's. All the time he wished that he were walking eastwards, and towards the tower. Oh, but what would be the use? He could not gain admission if he were. The hand of care lay fast upon his shoulder, and to dull the pressure he turned his thoughts, as he walked, into the one bright spot in the last few weeks, Alison's visit to Glenbucky. Unknown to him, Mrs. Stewart had contrived to get word of his condition to Ardroy, and the convalescent woke one day to feel his wife's lips upon his brow. He had made much more noticeable progress towards recovery after that. There were other patches of sunlight, too, in those heavy days. Little Peggy Stewart had made one of them. More than once, in the early part of his illness, 
he had wakened to find beside him a small, sedate, and very attentive watcher, whose legs dangled from the chair in which she was installed, and who said, when he opened his eyes, "'I will tell Mamma that you are awake, sir,' and slipped importantly down from her sentry-post. Later had come conversation. "'Have you a little girl, sir?' and the comment made with great decision when the small damsel heard of two boys and that she thought a little girl would be better. Another time it was. Oh, you never eated my bread, Manny. Mamma found it in your pocket. Oh, I'm very sorry, Peggy, Ewan had meekly replied. Oh, I'm sure it would have been very good. Peggy also expressed regret that his hair had been cut it off and this was the first intimation which Ewan received that his fevered head had been shorn, and that, when he was restored to the outer world, he would in consequence have to wear a wig, as, indeed, most men did. Alison, on her arrival, like Peggy, had lamented that operation, and when her husband, making a jest which for him held a pang, suggested that he might take the opportunity of wearing a black wig in order to change his appearance, Alison had cried out in horror for she did not desire his appearance changed. And then, understanding the reason of his speech, was all for anything which would serve to disguise him, and particularly when she found, and to her dismay, that he was set upon going to London directly the journey was possible for him, entirely abandoning his long-cherished idea of engaging an advocate for himself at Edinburgh. To that course, in the end, she became at least partially reconciled, and longed to accompany him, separated from him so long as she had been, and feeling that he would not be fit to look after himself for a while yet. But the great obstacle to this plan had been, not the children, since Aunt Margaret was back at Ardroy now, but the stark, bare obstacle which wrecks so many desires, want of money. Alison had brought her husband all that she could raise at the moment, but it would barely suffice for his own outfit, journey and maintenance in London. So she must stay behind. And besides, as she said bravely, what could I do towards saving the doctor, Ewan? I'm not his wife, and cannot play the part of Lady Nithsdale. Oh, Lady Nithsdale. Here, within three miles of the tower, those words of Alison came back to him, and Mr. Galbraith's of this afternoon who had said that part would never again be played with success. Had it any chance of prospering, and then that brave woman, Jean Cameron, who was Archie's wife, was of the stuff to play it. But she was in France. Ewan could not throw off the shadow which dogged him. Why, why had he ever persuaded his cousin to shelter in the woodcutter's hut? Indeed, if the fairies had put it there, as Archie had suggested, it had been for no good purpose. He saw it again, a cursed little place, as he walked up St. James's Street and surrounding so widely different, glancing back at the palace front as he crossed to the farther side. And it occurred to him how strange it was that he should be walking about London perfectly unmolested, when, if the authorities here knew of his doings at Fort William and Glenbucky, or if he were to meet Lord Aveling coming out of one of the clubs or coffee-houses which abounded in this region. As well he might, though not perhaps at so late an hour as this. 
but he felt beyond troubling over his own fate. As yet, the Highlander hardly knew his way around London, and at the junction of Bennett Street with Arlington Street made a mistake, turned to the left instead of the right, and, being deep in thought, went on without at once realizing that he was in a cul-de-sac. And then, brought up by the houses at the end, he stopped, wondering where he had got to. As he tried to take his bearings, the door of a house on the opposite side, almost in the angle, opened a little way, and a gentleman muffled in a cloak slipped very quietly, almost stealthily, out. A man who must have been waiting for him outside stepped forward and took the burning torch out of its holder by the door to light him home, though Arlington Street itself was sufficiently well lit. The two crossed over near Ewan, whom perhaps they did not notice, and made for the little street up which he had just come. Ewan turned quickly and looked after them, for the cloaked gentleman had spoken to his attendant in Gaelic, bidding him, somewhat sharply, hold the torch more steady. How the two were Highlanders, then! Ewan stifled the half-impulse to follow and accost them, which the sound of that beloved tongue had raised in him. After all, they were no concern of his, and he certainly did not know the speaker, who was young and wore his reddish hair unpowdered, for his hat cocked at a rakish ankle suffered the torchlight to gleam for an instant upon it. Some Highlander, Jacobite or Whig, more probably the latter, who knew intimately a man of position to judge from the elegant new brick house from which he had emerged. Well, God knew he only wished that he had a friend with influence living in this street, which looked as if it housed people of importance. 3. Next evening, a rainy one, Mr. Galbraith took Ewan, as he had promised, to the white cock in the Strand, to introduce him to some of its habitués. The Highlander was struck with the discreet and unassuming appearance of this Jacobite resort, which some said should be called en toutes lettres, the white cockade, the narrow passage in which it was situated, the disarming and rather inconvenient short flight of steps which led into its interior. But if its accessories were discreet, there did not seem to be much of that quality about its customers. Already, Ardra had been a little astonished at the openness with which Jacobite sentiments were displayed in London. But was this merely vain display? Had the tendency roots, and was it likely, in the present instance, to bear fruit? Somehow, as he talked with the men to whom his fellow-countrymen presented him, he began to doubt it. He had been there perhaps three-quarters of an hour or more, when the door at the top of the steps, opening once again, admitted a man who removed his wet cloak to his arm, and stood a moment looking round with a certain air of hesitation, as one searching for an acquaintance, or even, perhaps, a trifle unsure of his reception. Then he threw back his head in a gesture which was not unfamiliar to Ewan, who happened to be watching him, and came down the steps. Ardra got up. Oh, it could not be. Yet, unlikely as it seemed, it was Hector. Ardra hurried forward, and Hector's eyes fell upon him. Oh, Ewan, you here in London! And there was not only astonishment, but unmistakable relief in Lieutenant Grant's tone. Ewan was even more surprised to see him, 
but not particularly relieved. What on earth had brought Hector to London again? Or had he never rejoined his regiment last January? I'll tell you in a moment why I'm in England, said the young officer hurriedly. What incredible good fortune that you should be here. Come with me to my lodging. It is not far off. First, however, let me present you, began Ewan, but Hector broke in. How another time, not tonight, another time, and began to ascend the steps again. Puzzled, Ewan said that he must excuse himself to his friend Mr. Galbraith, and going back he did so. By the time he got up the steps, Hector himself was outside. His face in the light of the lamp over the doorway had a strange wretchedness, or so Ewan thought. Hector, is aught amiss with you? Amiss? queried his brother-in-law, with a sort of laugh. I'm ruined, unless... Oh, but come to my lodging, and you shall hear. Seizing Ardroy by the arm, he thereupon hurried him off through the rain. No, he had not got into trouble over his outstayed leave, and he had only arrived in London that morning. Oh, and God be praised that I've met with you, Ewan, and though I cannot think why you're here. Oh, surely you can guess that, said Ardroy, and because of Archibald Cameron. I thought it must be the same with you. Oh, so it is, answered Hector, with what sounded like a groan. Here we are. Beware the stair. It is very ill-lit. He guided his kinsman into an upstairs room, fumbled with tinder and steel, and lit a lamp so carelessly that the flame flared high and smoky, without his noticing it. Archibald Cameron! Ay, my God, Archibald Cameron! he said, and turned away. Oh, don't take it so much to heart, Echen, said Ewan kindly, laying a hand on his shoulder. Oh, it is not quite hopeless yet. God, you don't know yet what it is I'm taking to heart, exclaimed Hector with startling bitterness. Oh, I'm grieved to the soul over the doctor. But unless I can disprove the slander about his capture, I am ruined, as I told you, and may as well blow my brains out. Ewan stared at him in astonishment. Oh, my dear Hector, what slander? Ruined? What in heaven's name are you talking about? Hector seized his wrist. You've not heard it, then. Nor have they, I suppose, at the white cock, or they would have turned me out sans façon. I tell you, I was in a sweat of fear when I went in, but thank God that I did go, since by it I found you, and there's no man in the world I'd sooner have at my back. More, by token, since you know the circumstances. Oh, but those are just what I don't know, exclaimed Ardroy, more and more bewildered. See, Hector, calm yourself a little, and tell me what you're talking about. Has it anything to do with Archie? Oh, everything in the world. And they're saying, over there in Lille, in the regiment, the doctor's own regiment and mine, and that was an officer in French service who betrayed him, and something that the officer is... He stopped, his mouth twitching, his eyes distracted, and made a sort of gesture of pointing to himself. "'Oh, good God!' ejaculated Ewan in horror. "'You! On what possible? On what grounds? Because of the fatal letter which I lost that day on Loch Trig's side, 
and the letter which, you remember, we agreed at Fort William had probably never reached the authorities or done any harm at all, which, in any case, was taken from me by treachery and violence. But they hint, so I'm told, and that it was written in order to convey information, and that I gave it to the spy. Oh, my God, that men should whisper such a thing of me, and that I cannot kill them for it. Hector smote his hands together, and began to pace about the little room like a wild animal. But Ewan stood a moment half stupefied. Too well he knew, at least from hearsay, of mutual accusations among Jacobites of divergent views. But in Hector's own regiment, among his fellow officers. And then he recovered himself. "'Hector,' he said, with emphasis, "'that story is sheer nonsense.' It was a much more recent piece of information than any contained in your letter, which led to Archie's capture. "'How do you know?' asked the young man, swinging round with a tragic face. "'How do you know that?' "'Because I—' "'But I'll tell you the whole story in a moment. First, do you tell me?' Ewan interrupted his brother-in-law vehemently. "'If you'll only clear me, I give you leave, with all my heart, to dirk me afterwards, if you like.' <laughs> Ewan could not keep back a smile. "'The inducement is not overwhelming. "'But, Hector,' he added, as a sudden unwelcome idea smote him, and he, in his turn, gripped the young officer by the arm. "'Oh, I hope to God that you've not deserted. "'Have not come over without leave.' "'No, no. Lord Ogilvy gave me leave.' He does not believe the rumour, thank God. He thought it best that I should come. I had already called out a lieutenant in my company. Unfortunately, he got wind of it and stopped the meeting. He thought that if I came over, I might be able to find out who really was responsible for the doctor's capture, and thus clear myself. And it goes without saying that if there's any scheme on foot for Dr. Cameron's release or rescue, you may count on me de tout mon coeur. "'Alas, I fear that there's none at present,' said Ewan sadly. "'Yet, as regards his capture, and though I cannot give you the name of the man responsible, I can prove that it was not you.' "'But, Hector, who can have put about the slander? Who started it?' Hector shook his head. Oh, "'I could not find out. How does one discover a thing like that? Nor has anyone dared to tax me with it directly. It was more hints.' sneers, looks, avoidance of me. And those of your name and the regiment were naturally among the foremost. You must, said Ewan, considering, have been too free with your tongue over your unlucky loss of that letter last autumn. Not too free with my tongue. I never breathed a word about it to a soul over there, and not even to Lord Ogilvy. I was far too much ashamed. And you did not tell anyone when you were in Scotland I'll save you, no one. Huh, it is very strange. Well, tell me what chanced after our sudden parting that dark morning at Ardgower, and how you succeeded in getting over to France. Hector told him. Oh, there, exclaimed his brother-in-law at the end. And so it was young Glen Sheehan who helped you to papers. How the devil did he contrive to do that? Oh, faith, I don't know over well. He gave me a letter to someone whom I never saw, with a faint name at that. 
I was grateful enough to the future chief, though there's something about the man which I find hard to stomach. You've never met him, I think. Now, Ewan, keep me in suspense no longer. Oh, stay one moment, said Ardroy slowly. You told young Glenshean, how oh, you could not help yourself, of the loss of your necessary papers. Perhaps you told him of the loss of the letter, too. A flush ran over Hector's face, and his jaw fell a trifle. He thumped the table. Oh, you're right, I did. Oh, but he, surely, could not have spread. Ah, no, no, I do not suppose that for an instant. It was only that you said you told nobody save me. Nobody over the water nor in Scotland. Oh, I vow, I'd forgotten Finlay Macfair in London. He was so anxious to know whether I had lost any compromising document. But that he could have put about such a libel is out of the question. Oh, I fear, however, that he may have mentioned my misfortune to some third person. But now, for your proof, Ewan, which is to clear me. And tell me, too, how soon you got back from Ardgower and all that has befallen you of late. How do you look, now that I see you closer? Have you been ill, by any chance? End of chapter 16 Section 17 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Bronster This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen Foreseen and Unforeseen 1. It had been arranged that Hector should come to Ewan's lodging early next morning, and that they should both go to wait upon Mr. Galbraith. Ewan therefore remained in his room writing a letter to Alison, but when it was already three-quarters of an hour past the time appointed, and still the young man did not arrive, Ardroy began to get uneasy about him. When an hour and a quarter had elapsed, he was walking about his room really anxious. What had the boy been doing? Should he go to the Strand in search of him? But then he might so easily miss him on the way. When another twenty minutes had ticked itself away among the sun, moon, and stars of Mrs. Wilson's great clock, he strode into his bedroom for his hat. He could wait no longer. He must go and look for the truant. And then he heard his landlady's voice, explaining to someone that she thought Mr. Cameron must by now have gone out. And no, I've not, said Ewan, appearing on the threshold of his bedroom. Was that you at last, Hector? What on earth has delayed you so? I'll tell you in a moment, said young Grant, rather hoarsely. I've made what haste I could. And, indeed, his brow was damp, and he sank down in a chair in the sitting-room, as if exhausted. Ewan asked him if he were ill, for he was clearly under the sway of some emotion or other, and, when Hector shook his head, and said, Then, tis this business of the slander on you. Have you discovered something? Oh, no, no, it is not that, said Hector. And then he got it out with a jerk. Ewan, Dr. Cameron was this morning condemned to death, without trial. A club seemed to strike Ewan's head, like that musket-butt in the wood. Yet this news was expected. How did you hear it? he asked, after a moment's silence. I... 
Oh, you and I would have given anything to get to you in time. But I swear that it was only by chance that I was on the spot. And then it was too late. Oh, I tried to send a messenger. In truth, it should have been you, not I. But it was not my fault. A light broke on Ardry. Oh, you mean that you actually heard him sentenced? Hector nodded and went on in the same apologetic tone. Oh, it was all chance and hurry. Had your lodging not been so far away? Oh, you've seen Archie this morning. Where was he brought up for sentence, then? What the Court of Kings bent in Westminster Hall. Ewan sat down at the table. Oh, tell me about it. No, I do not blame you, Hector. Why should I? Oh, yet I would have given much. He clenched his hand a second on the edge of the table. Oh, tell me everything. So Hector told him. The story began with his going for an early walk along the riverside and finding himself, when he got to Westminster, in the presence of a considerable crowd, which, as he then discovered to his surprise, was waiting in the hopes of getting a glimpse of the Jacobite as he was brought by coach from the tower to have sentence passed upon him. After the first astonishment, my thoughts were all of you, Ewan, said Hector earnestly, and I was for coming at once to fetch you. But it appeared that the court was already assembled, and that the prisoner might arrive at any moment. Oh, I tried to get a hackney coach. I could not. Oh, I tried to send a messenger. No one would stir. Then, I thought, if I cannot warn Ewan, who, after all, has probably heard of this from some other source, I will at least do my best to get a sight of the doctor, to tell him how he seems. I'd no hope of entering Westminster Hall, since the press was so great, and moreover those who went in appeared to have tickets of admission. And the crowd moved and pushed, to such an extent, that I began to fear I should not get the slightest glimpse of Dr. Cameron when he came. And, after a while, indeed, I found myself penned with one or two others into an angle of the building, where I could see nothing. However, there was in this angle a small door, and when the man nearest it, in a fit of annoyance, began to beat upon it, it was suddenly opened by an official, who grumblingly consented to find places for four or five of the nearest. And this he did. And so you heard, or saw. Oh, I did both, though with difficulty, being at the back of the court, which was crammed with persons like myself, and suffocatingly hot. The proceedings were quite short. The doctor was extremely composed, neither defiant nor a whit overwhelmed. He appeared, too, in good health. Nor did he attempt to deny that he was the person named in the act of attainder. Oh, did he make no defence? Had he not an advocate? No. The only defence which he made was to say that he could not have acted otherwise than he did, having to follow Lochiel, his brother-in-chief, and that in the troubles he had always set his face against reprisals or harsh treatment, of which he gave some instances, and that his own character would bear investigation in the same light. Oh, then came that barbarous sentence for high treason, pronounced by one of the three judges present. The Lord Chief Justice, I think it was. And Ewan, it was not imagination on my part that he laid particular emphasis on those words respecting the hanging. Oh, but not till you are dead, glowering at the doctor as he uttered them. Many people remarked it and were talking about it afterwards. Oh, but Dr. Cameron was perfectly calm and merely made a civil bow at the end. After that, 
However, he asked earnestly that the execution of the sentence, which had been fixed for this day fortnight, might be deferred a little, in order to enable him to see his wife, to whom he had already had permission to write, bidding her to come to him from France. And he added that she and their seven children were all dependent upon him, and that it would be worse than death to him not to see her again. And so the court decided to instruct the Attorney-General and that the sentence should not be carried out until a week later, on the 7th of June, in order to permit of this. And then the doctor was removed, and everyone fought their way out again, and I came away feeling that if I really believed my rashness and carelessness last September were the causes of Archibald Cameron standing there, and where I suppose he may stand in three weeks' time, even though no one accused me of it, I would blow my brains out tonight. Be reassured, Hector, they are not the cause, said Ardroy in an emotionless voice. But his face was very haggard. What is I am the person most immediately responsible, for it was I who found that accursed hut in the wood at Glenbucky and persuaded him to lie hid in it. Yes, I expected this news, but that makes it no easier to bear. Hector, he must be saved somehow, even if it should mean both our lives. How oh, I'm quite ready to give mine, answered young Grant, simply. It would be the best means, too, of clearing my honour, far the best. Oh, but we cannot strike a bargain with the English government, Ewan, and that they should hang us in his place. And I hear that the tower is a very strong prison. Oh, let us go to Westminster and see Mr. Galbraith, said his brother-in-law. And they walked for some distance in silence, and when they were nearing the top of St. James's Street, Ewan pulled at his companion's arm. Oh, let us go this way, he said abruptly, and they turned down Arlington Street. Just from curiosity, I have a desire to know who lives in a certain new house in the bottom corner there. Hector, usually so alert, seemed too dulled by his recent experience to exhibit either surprise or curiosity at this proceeding. And they walked to the end of Arlington Street. Yes, that is the house, observed Ewan after a moment's scrutiny. Now, to find out who lives in it. Oh, why? asked Hector. And, rousing himself to a rather perfunctory attempt at jocularity, he added, oh, Remember that you're in the company with Alison's brother, Ardroy, if it's the name of some fair lady whom you saw go into that house which you're seeking. It was a man whom I saw come out of it, replied Ewan briefly, and, noticing a respectable-looking old gentleman in spectacles, advancing down Arlington Street at that moment, he accosted him with a request to be told who lived at number 17. "'Oh, dear me,' said the old gentleman, pushing his spectacles into place, and peering up at the tall speaker. Oh, "'You must, indeed, be a stranger to this part of the town, sir, not to know that number 17 is the house of Mr. Henry Pelham, the chief minister, brother to my Lord Newcastle.' "'Oh, I am a stranger,' admitted Ewan. "'Oh, thank you, sir.' He lifted his hat again, and the old gentleman, returning the courtesy, trotted off. "'How oh, Mr. Pelham the minister,' remarked Hector, with reviving interest. "'And whom, pray, did you see coming out of Mr. Pelham's house?' "'Oh, that is just what it might be useful to discover,' replied Ewan musingly, "'now that one knows how important a personage lives there.' "'But I suppose that a good many people must come out of it,' objected the young officer. 
Why does the particular man whom you happen to see so greatly interest you? Oh, because he was a Highlander, and it was close upon midnight. And, as a Highlander, and though naturally a Whig, if one could interest him on a fellow Highlander's behalf, and he is an intimate of Mr. Pelham's. Oh, how did you know that he was a Highlander, since I take it that he was not wearing the Highland dress? Oh, because I heard him rate his servant in ours. Oh, that's proof enough, admitted Hector. Would you know him again if you saw him? Oh, I think so. However, the chances are against my having the good fortune to do so. Ewan began to walk on. Oh, I wonder what Mr. Galbraith will have to say about this morning's affair. And he sighed heavily. And there was always much to be said. It was rather what was to be done. 2. Darkness had fallen for some time when Ewan neared his lodging in Half Moon Street again. In fact, it was nearly eleven o'clock. But when he was almost at the door, he realized that to enter was out of the question. He must do something active with his body, and the only form of activity open to him was to walk, had to walk anywhere. So, not knowing or caring where he was going, he turned away again. His brain was swimming with talk, and talk with Hector, talk at Mr. Galbraith's, talk at the White Cock, where the three of them had supped. There it had been confidently announced that public opinion would be so stirred over Dr. Cameron's hard case, and that the government would be obliged to commute the sentence, for already its severity seemed like to be the one topic throughout London. It was reported that many Whigs of high standing were perturbed about it, and the effect which it might have upon public opinion, coming so long after the rising of forty-five, and having regard to the blameless private character of the condemned man. It was even said, the wish having perhaps engendered the idea, and that sentence had only been passed in order that the elector might exercise his prerogative of mercy, and by pardoning Dr. Cameron, perhaps at the eleventh hour, gain over wavering Jacobites by his magnanimity. But one or two others, less optimistic, had asked with some bitterness whether the party was strong or numerous enough now to be worth impressing in this way. For fully half an hour Ewan tramped around streets and squares until, hearing a church clock strike, he pulled himself out of the swarm of unhappy thoughts which went with him for all his fast walking, saw that it was between half-past eleven and midnight, and for the first time began to consider where he might be. He had really become so oblivious of his surroundings as he went, and that it was quite a surprise to find himself now, a not particularly reputable-looking street. Surely, a few moments ago. Yet, on the other hand, for all the attention he had been paying, it might have been a quarter of an hour. He had been in a square of large, imposing mansions. Had he merely imagined this? Were grief and anxiety really depriving him of his senses? He turned in some bewilderment and looked back the way he had come. London was a confusing town. It was a light spring night, and he could see that beyond the end of this narrow street and there were much larger houses, mansions even. He was right. 
but he also saw something which kept him rooted there. Two men, armed with weapons of some kind, stealing out of a passage about fifty yards away, and hastening to the end of the street, where it debouched back into the square. When they got there, they drew back into the mouth of an entry, and stood half crouching, as if waiting. Surprise and curiosity kept Ewan staring. And then he realized that these men were probably lurking there with a purpose far from innocent. And even as he started back towards the entry, this purpose was revealed, and for the bulk of a sedan chair, with its porters, came suddenly into view, crossing the end of the street, on its way, no doubt, to one of the great houses in the square. And instantly the two men darted towards it, flourishing their weapons, which had the appearance of bludgeons. Ewan quickened his pace to a run, ran, in fact, with all his might, to the sucker of the sedan-chair, which very probably contained a lady. He was certainly needed by its occupant, of whichever sex, and for the two chairmen, calling loudly for the watch, had taken in gloriously to their heels at the approach of danger. Before Ewan came up, one of the footpaths had already lifted the roof of the chair, opened the door, and was pulling forth no female in distress, but a protesting elderly gentleman in flowered brocade, stout and a trifle short. Yet he was a valiant elderly gentleman, for the moment he succeeded in freeing his right arm, out flashed his sword. But the next instant his weapon was shivered by a cudgel blow, and he himself seized by the cravat. That, however, was the exact instant, also at which another sword, with a longer and a younger arm behind it, came upon the assailants from the rear. Apparently they had not heard Ardroy's hurrying footfalls, nor his shouts to them to desist. Now one of them turned to face him, but his stand was very short. He dropped his cudgel with a howl, and ran back down the narrow street. His fellow, of a more tenacious breed, still held on to the cravat of the unfortunate gentleman, trying to wrest out the diamond brooch which secured the lace at his throat. Ewan could have run his sword through the aggressor from side to side, but, being afraid of wounding the gentleman as well, took the course of crooking his left arm round the man's neck from behind, more than half choking him. The assailant's hands loosed the cravat with remarkable celerity, and tore instead at the garroting arm round its own throat. The rescuer then flung him away, and, as the footpad rolled in the gutter, turned in some concern to the victim of the attack, who by this time was hastily rearranging his assaulted cravat. "'Oh, my dear sir,' began the latter in a breathless voice, desisting and holding out both his hands. "'Oh, my dear sir, I can never thank you enough. Most noble conduct. Most noble. I am your debtor for life. Oh, no, thank you. I am shaken, but little the worse. If you will have the further goodness to lend me your arm to my house, and tis but a few paces distant, and then I must insist on your entering, and that I may thank my preserver more fittingly. Oh, I sincerely trust, he finished earnestly, that you are yourself unharmed. Ewan assured him that this was the case, and sheathing the sword which in England there was no embargo upon his wearing, offered his arm. By this time the second footpad had also vanished. How the outrageousness went on the rescued gentleman, how the insolence 
of such an attack within a few yards of my own door. Oh, those rascally chairmen! I wonder were they in collusion. I vow I'll never take a hired chair again. Oh, there come the watch, and too late, as usual. Oh, my dear sir, what would have befallen me without your most timely assistance? Heaven alone knows. They were by this time mounting the steps of a large house in the square, whose domestics, even if they had not heard the disturbance in the street, must have been on the lookout for their master's entrance, for he had given but the slightest tap with a massive knocker before the door swung open, revealing a spacious pillared hall and a couple of lackeys. Almost before he knew it, Ewan was inside, having no great desire to enter, but realizing that it would be churlish to refuse. "'A most disgraceful attack has just been made upon me, Jenkins,' said the master of the house, to a resplendent functionary, who then hurried forward. Oh, "'Here, at the very corner of the square. Had it not been for this gentleman's gallantry in coming to my assistance? Oh, if that is the watch, come to ask for particulars.' as another knock was heard at the hall door. Oh, tell them to come again in the morning. I'll not see them now. Yes, my lord, said the resplendent menial, respectfully. Oh, your lordship was actually attacked. His tone expressed the acme of horror. Oh, may I ask, has your lordship suffered any hurt? Oh, none at all, none at all, thanks to this gentleman. All my lady's company has gone, I suppose. Has she retired? No? Oh, I'm glad of it. Now, my dear sir, he went on, laying his hand on Ewan's arm, allow me the pleasure of presenting you to my wife, who will wish to add her thanks to mine. He steered his rescuer towards the great staircase, adding as he did so. Oh, by the way, I fancy I've not yet told you who I am, or oh, the Earl of Stowe, henceforward very much yours to command. End of chapter 17 Section 18 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen Crossing Swords If a man ever wished himself well out of a situation in which as it happened, his own prowess had landed him. It was Ewan Cameron of Ardroy when that announcement fell upon his ears. What fatality had induced him to succour and be brought home by the father of the very man whom he had treated so scurvily two months ago, and who had sworn to be revenged upon him? Obviously the wisest course was to excuse himself and withdraw before he could meet that injured young gentleman but already Lord Stowe was motioning him with a courteous gesture to ascend the imposing staircase. Without great incivility he could not withdraw now, nor, it seemed to him, without great cowardice to boot. And if he must encounter Lord Aveling again, this place and these circumstances were certainly more favourable than any which he could have devised for himself. Moreover, Aveling might not be in London at this moment, Above all, Ewan's was a stubborn courage, as well as, on occasions, a hot-brained one. He never relished running away. He therefore went on up the wide, shallow staircase, and was looked down upon with haughty disapproval by Aveling's ancestors. 
Outside a door, the Earl paused. May I know the name of my preserver? Oh, I beg your pardon, my lord, returned Ewan. I forgot that I had not made myself known to you. My name is Ewan Cameron of Ardroy, at your service. Now, what had Lord Stowe heard of Ewan Cameron of Ardroy? If anything at all, nothing of good, and that was certain. And the bearer of that name lifted his head with a touch of defiance, for its utterance had certainly brought about a change in his host's expression. A kinsman of the unfortunate Dr. Cameron's, perhaps, he inquired. Yes, he is my cousin and my friend, answered Ewan uncompromisingly. Ah, observed Lord Stowe, with a not unsympathetic intonation. What sad business, his. Oh, but come, Mr. Cameron. And, opening the heavy inlaid door, he ushered him into an enormous room of green and gold, where every candle round the painted walls burned, but burned low, and where the disposition of the furniture spoke of a gathering now dispersed. But the most important person still remained. On a sofa, in an attitude of incomparable grace, languor and assurance, with a little book poised lazily between her long fingers, half sat, half reclined, and the most beautiful woman whom Ewan had ever seen. And then, only, in the suddenness of these events and introductions, did he realize that he was in the presence of Keith Wyndham's mother, as well as of Lord Aveling's. As the door shut, Lady Stowe half turned her head, and said in silver tones, you are returned at last, my lord, and do I see that you bring a guest? Oh, I do, my love, replied her husband, and one to whom we owe a very great debt indeed. And Ewan was led forward across the acres of carpet to that gilt sofa, and kissed the cool, fragrant hand extended to him, but faintly conscious of embarrassment at the praises of his courage which the earl was pouring forth, and with all thoughts of an avenging Aveling had dissipated. It was of Lady Stowe's elder son, his dead friend, whom he thought as he looked at that proud and lovely face. Oh, not that there was any likeness. But surely this could not have been Keith Wyndham's mother. She seemed no older, at least by candlelight, and then he, when he died seven years ago. And then Ewan found himself in a chair, with the Countess saying flattering things to him, rallying him gently, too, in those seductive tones. And you are a Scot, sir, a kinsman of that unfortunate gentleman who is in all our minds and just now, and yet you come to the rescue of an Englishman and a Whig. It was an Englishman and a Whig, Lady Stowe, who once saved me from a far greater danger, replied Ewan. He said it of set purpose, for he wished to discover if she knew what her elder son had been to him. Apparently Lady Stowe did not, nor was she curious to learn to what he referred, for she merely said, Oh, indeed, and that is gratifying. And, in fact, before the subject could be enlarged upon from either side, Lord Stowe was remarking to the guest by way of conversation suitable to his nationality. Oh, my son has recently been visiting Scotland, and for the first time, of the menace of Aveling returned to Ewan's memory, and by the tense it seemed as if that young gentleman had now returned from the north. "'You are from the Highlands, I suppose,' Mr. Cameron went on the Earl pleasantly. 
and my son visited them also for a short while, going to Dunstaffnage Castle in the lawn. How do you happen to know it? Ewan intimated that he did from the outside. And now a voice was crying out to him to end the difficult situation in which he stood, and though neither his host nor his hostess was aware of it, by offering of his own will some explanation of the episode at Dalmally. For, with this mention of Lord Aveling in the Highlands, not to acknowledge that they had made each other's acquaintance there seemed so unnatural and secretive as to throw an even worse light upon his behaviour towards him. At the very least, it made him appear ashamed of it. He pulled himself together for the plunge. Oh, I must tell you, my lord, he was beginning, when his voice was withered on his lips by an extraordinary grating, screeching sound, which, without warning, rent the air of the great drawing-room. Startled, as at some supernatural intervention, Ewan glanced hastily round in search of its source. How oh, do not be alarmed, Mr. Cameron, came Lady Stowe's cool tones through the disturbance. It is only that my macaw has waked up, but I apologize for the noise he makes. And then the Highlander beheld, in a corner not very far away, a gilded cage, and therein a large bird of the most gorgeous plumage, with a formidable curved beak and a tail of fire and azure, who was pouring forth what sounded like a stream of imprecations. Oh, for heaven's sake, cried the earl, jumping to his feet. Why thought you had given up having that creature in this room, my lady? Is there no means to make him stop? For the deafening scolding went on, without intermission. Lady Stowe leant forward. If you will have the goodness to cover him up, she said, with complete calm, he will be quiet. Both men looked round helplessly for something with which to carry out this suggestion. Ewan, too, had got to his feet. I'll cover him up with what, pray? asked Lord Stowe indignantly. Oh, good gad, this is insupportable. And, slightly red in the face, he tugged at the nearest bell-pull. Meanwhile, the infernal screeching continued unceasingly, except for one short moment, when the macaw made a vicious grab at the earl's lace-bordered handkerchief, with which he was exasperatedly flapping the bars of the cage in an endeavour to silence its inmate. A footman appeared. Remove this bird at once, shouted his master angrily. He was obliged to shout. And the man hesitated. A Montezuma will bite him, and he knows it, observed Lady Stowe, raising her voice but slightly. I'll send Sambo, John. And the man bowed and withdrew with alacrity. Oh, this is worse than footpads, declared the Earl, with his hands to his ears. Oh, I cannot sufficiently apologize, Mr. Cameron. He had almost to bawl the words. Oh, really, my lady, if I could wring your pet's neck without getting bitten, I would. Oh, I know it, my love, returned her ladyship with her slow, charming smile. And so, I'm sure, would poor Mr. Cameron. Then Black Sambo appeared in his scarlet turban and jutting white plume. Smiling broadly, he strutted off with a great gilt cage, whose occupant continued to scream, but made no onslaught upon those dusky fingers. Oh, I really cannot sufficiently apologize, began the Earl once more to his half-deafened guest, for my wife's fancy. A what? called a young, laughing voice from the door. Has Montezuma been misbehaving again? 
someone had come in just as the exiled and vociferating fowl was borne out. But for that noise, I thought you'd gone to bed by this time. Oh, you promised, my dear mother, that he... But here the speaker realized that there was a stranger in his family circle, pulled out a handkerchief, flicked some probably imaginary grains of powder off his gleaming coat, and advanced across the wilderness of carpet to the three by the sofa, a veritable prince charming, in peach-coloured satin and a deal of lace. And Ewan, watching his fate advance upon him, in the person of this smiling and elegant young man, silently cursed the departed Macaw, with a mortification a thousand times deeper than the Earl's. But for that ridiculous contretemps, he might either have made his confession, or escaped meeting his late victim, or both. But there was no escape now. Lord Aveling, still smiling, got within a yard or two of the group when he saw who the stranger was. He stopped, and the smile died, his face froze, and the hand with a filmy handkerchief fell, gripping the Mechlin. Lord Stowe must have been blind had he not noticed the startling change on the countenance of his heir. But, if not blind, he was possibly short-sighted, for he did not by any means appear to read its full significance. "'You are surprised to see a guest here so late, Aveling, I perceive,' he said mildly. "'But you will be still more surprised when you learn the reason for this gentleman's presence to-night.' Oh, "'I've no doubt at all that I shall,' said Lord Aveling, under his breath. He had never removed his eyes from Ewan, and they seemed to say, almost as clear as speech. Oh, "'You cannot have had the insolence to make your way in here to apologize. I was this evening, went on Lord Stowe, with impressement, the victim of a murderous attack, and perhaps you have already heard of it from the servants. An attack, repeated Lord Aveling, at last turning his gaze upon his parent. On whose part? This gentleman's. Oh, good gad, Aveling, what can you be thinking of? exclaimed his father, shocked. Oh, this gentleman, Mr. Cameron of Ardroy, had the great goodness to risk his own person for mine. Mr. Cameron, this is my son, Lord Aveling. And Ewan bowed, not very deeply. An introduction is not necessary, my lord, observed Lord Aveling. We met not long ago in Scotland, Mr. Cameron and I. And with that he turned his back carelessly on the guest and went over to the sofa to speak to his mother. Lord Stowe looked as if he could hardly believe his ears or eyes partly at this announcement, partly at the sight of his son's uncivil behaviour. "'You met in Scotland,' he repeated, after a moment, in tones of amazement. "'I was just on the point of making that fact known to your lordship,' said Ewan, when the bird interrupted me. He was white, with chagrin. Lord Aveling and I did, indeed, meet as he was returning from Dunstaffnage Castle. "'Yes,' cut in the young man, turning round again, and owing to a difficulty over post-horses, I had the privilege, as I see I must now consider it, of offering Mr. Cameron a seat in my chaise as far as Dalmally. "'Oh, my dear Aveling, why did you not tell us this before?' asked Lady Stowe. "'How could I guess that it would be of any interest to you to learn that I gave a lift to a stranger in the wilds of Scotland? It would have seemed, my dear mother, to be laying too much stress upon a deed of charity.' 
Moreover, I can affirm, with my hand upon my heart, that Mr. Cameron of Ardroy is the last person in the world whom I expected to find in this house. His manner, if controlled, was patently full of some ironical meaning, which, though clear enough to Ardroy, was puzzling to his parents, who, having no clue to it, may have received the impression that it was a trifle the worse for wine. The Countess said, with smiling authority, how oh, then, it behoves you all the more, Francis, to hear how Mr. Cameron beat off the footpaths who assailed your father's chair this evening at the corner of the house. English footpaths, queried the young man, and he looked meaningly for an instant at the rescuer. Oh, why, what else? asked his father. Two footpaths armed with cudgels. I had the narrowest chance of being robbed, if not of being murdered. Oh, I can quite believe that you had, sir observed Lord Aveling, looking at Ewan again. But Ewan had by now resolved that he was not going to suffer these stabs any longer, nor was he disposed to hear the account of his prowess given a second time, and to the mocking accompaniment which he knew that it would receive. He therefore took advantage of the check to Lord Stowe's imminent narrative, brought about by these, to him, unintelligible remarks of his sons, firmly to excuse himself on the score of the lateness of the hour, Either Lord Aveling would allow him to leave the house without further words, or he would not. In any case, it was probable that he desired such words to take place without witnesses. The fact that he had not previously mentioned to his family their encounter and its disastrous end seemed to point to the fact that his young pride had been too bitterly wounded for him to speak of it, even in the hope of obtaining revenge. It might be very different now that his enemy was delivered so neatly into his hands. Oh, you must promise to visit us again, Mr. Cameron, said the Countess with the utmost graciousness, and Lord Stowe said the same, adding that if there were any way in which he could serve him, he had but to name it. Ewan thought rather sardonically how surprised the Earl would be if he responded by a request that he should prevent his son from landing him in Newgate but he merely murmured polite thanks as the earl conducted him to the door of the drawing-room. It seemed as though he were going to pay his rescuer the further compliment of descending the stairs with him, but in this design he had reckoned without his son, who, as Ewan was perfectly aware, had followed behind them, awaiting his opportunity. "'I will escort Mr. Cameron down the stairs, my lord,' he said easily, slipping in front of his father. "'You must remember that we are old acquaintances.' He sounded perfectly civil and pleasant now, and after a barely perceptible hesitation, the Earl relinquished the guest to his care, shook hands with great warmth, repeating his assurance of undying gratitude and a perpetual warm welcome at Stowe House. And then the door closed, and Ewan and Lord Aveling were alone together. How will you come into the library downstairs? asked the young man, somewhat in the tone he might have used to a mason come about repairs, and with as little apparent doubt of the response. Yes, answered Ardroy, with equal coldness. I will, and followed him down the great staircase. In the marble-pillared hall a footman stepped forward. Take lights into the library, commanded the young lord, and while he and Ewan waited for this to be done, without speaking, or even looking at each other, Ewan, gazing up at a portrait of some judicial ancestor in wig and ermine. Not inappropriate to the present circumstances, I thought. 
What is to prevent my opening the door into the square and leaving the house? What, indeed? Something much stronger than the desire to do so. But in another moment, the lackey was preceding them with a couple of branched candlesticks into a room lined with books. He made as though to light the sconces, too, but Lord Aveling checked him impatiently, and the man merely set the lights on the big polished table in the centre and withdrew. The son of the house waited until his footsteps had died away on the marble outside. "'Now, Mr. Cameron,' he said, "'you and had always known that to come to London was to invite the fates to present him with a reckoning for his behaviour at Dalmally. Well, if it had to be, it was preferable to have it presented by the victim himself rather than by some emissary of the justice which he had invoked.' And, however this unpleasant interview was to end, he might perhaps during its course succeed in convincing Lord Aveling of the sincerity of his regrets for that lamentable episode. "'I suppose, my lord,' he now answered gravely, "'that you must say what you please to me. I admit that I have little right to resent it.' The admission, unfortunately, appeared but to inflame the young nobleman the more. Oh, you are vastly kind, Mr. Cameron, upon my soul. You lay aside resentment, forsooth. Why well, fear I cannot rise to that height, and let me tell you, therefore, that what I found almost more blackguardly than your infamous conduct at Dalmally is the coop you have brought off to-night in— The coop I have brought off, exclaimed Ewan, in bewilderment. My lord, what? Aveling swept on. In forcing an entrance to this house, and ingratiating yourself with my parents, having put my father under a fancied obligation, and by a trick so transparent, that, if he were not the most good-natured man alive, he would have seen through it at once. At this totally unexpected interpretation of the sedan-chair incident, a good deal of Ewan's coolness left him. Oh, you cannot really think that the attack on Lord Stowe was planned, and that I was responsible for it. "'How else am I to account for your being there so pat?' inquired the young man. "'You hired the ruffians, and then came in as a deliverer. "'It has been done before now. "'And having succeeded in laying Lord Stowe under an obligation, "'you know that I cannot well—' "'He broke off, his rage getting the better of him. "'But the insolence, the inexpressible insolence, "'of your daring to enter this house after what has happened—' "'Since I did not plan the attack, Lord Aveling,' said Ewan firmly, "'I had no notion whom I was rescuing. "'Nor did Lord Stowe tell me his name "'until he was on the point of taking me upstairs. "'It was too late to withdraw, then. "'As I am henceforward unable to believe a word that you say, sir,' "'retorted the young man, "'it is of small use your pretending ignorance of my father's identity.' Yet perhaps you are still able to recognize logic when you hear it, rejoined Ewan with some sharpness, his own temper beginning to stir. Had I known that the gentleman in this adventure was Lord Stowe, which, if I had planned the attack, I must have known, the merest prudence would have kept me from entering a house in which I was so like to meet you. Yes, said Lord Aveling with a bitter little smile, you would have done better to part sooner from my father after this pretended rescue. And yet, said the Highlander, looking at him with a touch of wistfulness in his level gaze, 
as chance has brought us together again, is it too much to hope, my lord, and that you will at least endeavour to accept my most sincere and humble apologies for what my great necessity forced me to do that evening? Apologies, said Viscount Aveling. No, by heaven, and there are no apologies humble enough for what you did. And then I am ready to give you satisfaction, in the way usual, between gentlemen, said Ewan gravely. And the young man shook his powdered head. Between gentlemen, yes, but a gentleman does not accept satisfaction of that kind from a highwayman. He has him punished, as I swore I would you. But you doubtless think that by gaining the Earl's good will you have put that out of my power. Let me assure you, Mr. Highwayman, that you have not. The law is still the law. Oh, I doubt if the law can touch me for what I did, answered Ewan. Not for theft, horse-stealing, and assault. And then this must indeed be an uncivilized country. And behind those crimes remains always the question of how my brother really met his end. That I have already told you, Lord Aveling. Yes, and I was fool enough to believe you. I'm wiser now. I know of what you are capable, Mr. Ewan Cameron. Ewan turned away from the furious young man, who still maintained his position by the door. He was at a loss what to do next. And there was no common ground on which they could meet, though once there had seemed so much. But he himself had shorn it away. One of the candles in the massive silver-branched candlesticks, which had been deposited upon the table, was guttering badly, and in the strange way in which a portion of the mind will attend to trifles at moments of crisis, he took up the snuffers which lay there in readiness, and mended the wick with scarcely the least consciousness of what he was doing. His action had an unexpected result. Lord Aveling started a few paces forward, pointing at the hand which had performed the service. "'And you still have the effrontery to wear the ring which you took from poor Keith.' "'And you will lay down the snuffers. "'I have the effrontery, since you call it so, to wear the ring he gave me, "'and I shall wear it unto my own dying day.' "'The words, though they were very quietly uttered, rang like a challenge, "'and as a challenge the young man took them up. "'How will you?' he asked. "'I think not.' Here, in this house, above all, I have no liking to see my poor brother's property on your finger, and you will kindly surrender it to his family. Although I take you to be jesting, my lord, began Ewan very coldly. Oh, jesting, flashed out Aveling. No, by God, you will give me back Keith Wyndham's signet ring, or... Or, questioned Ewan, or I'll have it taken from you by the lackeys, Oh, then, you will hardly be in a position to throw my theft of your property in my face, retorted Ardroy. I had not stolen my pistols and my horse, reposted Lord Aveling. Nor have I stolen my friend's ring. He gave it to me, and I give it up to nobody. Oh, I dispute your statement, cried the young man with passion. You took that ring, whether you're guilty of my brother's death or no. You are very capable of such an act. I know that now. Oh, give it up to me, or I shall do what I say. My father has retired by now, and do not imagine that he can protect you. As to that, my lord, you must follow your own instincts, said Ewan scornfully. 
but you'll not get my friend's dying gift from me by threats. No, nor by performances, either, he added, as he saw Lord Aveling move towards the bell pole. Yes, you think they are but threats, and that you can treat them with contempt, said the young man between his teeth. I'll show you in one moment that they are not. I've only to pull this bell, and in two or three minutes a so-called Highland gentleman will go sprawling down the steps of Stowe House. You will not be able to bully half a dozen footmen as you bullied me. Ewan stood perfectly motionless, but he had paled. It was quite true that this irate, beautifully dressed young man had the power to carry out this new threat. Of the two, he fancied he would almost have preferred the menace which Lord Aveling had uttered at Dalmally, and that he would bring his assailant to Newgate. But he put the hand with the ring into his breast and said again, I can only repeat that you must follow your instincts, my lord. I follow mine, and you do not get this ring from me unless you take it by force. Aveling put his hand to the embroidered Chinese bell pole hanging by the mantelpiece. And Ewan looked at him. It needed a great effort of self-control on his part not to seize the young man and tear it out of his hand before he pulled it, as he could easily have done. And, in view of events in the bedroom at Dalmally, still only too fresh in his mind, this abstention evidently struck the angry Aveling as strange. Oh, I observe, he said tauntingly, still holding the strip of silk, and that you're not so ready to assault me now, Mr. Cameron, when you know that you would instantly have to pay for it. It was in someone else's interests that I used violence on you then, my lord. I've no one else's to serve now said Ewan sadly. Suddenly and oddly reflective, Lord Aveling gazed at him, the tassel of the abandoned bell-pole still moving slowly to and fro across the wall. Oh, I would have given well nigh all I possess to be in your place, my lord, went on Ardroy, his own dangerous and unpleasant situation clean forgotten. Oh, to see how he looked, and though I've heard how well he bore himself. But if the judges knew what manner of man he was, how generous, how kind, how humane, they would not have condemned him on that seven years old attainder. Francis Delahaye, Lord Aveling, was a very young man, and he had also been in an extreme of justifiable rage. But even that fury, now past its high-water mark, had not entirely swamped his native intelligence and sensitiveness, which were above the ordinary. He continued to look at Ewan without saying anything, as one in the grip of a perfectly new idea. Then, instead of putting his hand again to the bell-pull, he slowly walked away from its neighbourhood with his head bent, leaving the door unguarded and his threat unfulfilled. But Ewan neither took advantage of these facts, nor looked to see what his adversary was doing. The full wretchedness of the morning was back upon him. Archie had only three weeks to live. And if only he had not made an enemy of this young man, Lord Stowe, so grateful to his rescuer, might have been induced to use his influence on Archie's behalf. Oh, but it was hopeless to think of that now. It was at this moment, during the silence which had fallen, that steps which sounded too authoritative to be those of a servant could be heard approaching along the marble corridor outside. 
Lord Avelick, at any rate, could assign them to their owner, for he came back from whatever portion of the library he had wandered to, murmuring with a frown. Oh, my father! On that the door opened, and the earl came in. His expression was perturbed. Oh, I waited for your reappearance, Aveling, he said to his son, and then I was informed that Mr. Cameron had not left the house, and that you were both closeted in here. And your manner to him had been so strange that I decided to come in person to find out what was amiss. And there was dignity about Lord Stowe now. He was no longer a somewhat fussy little gentleman, deafened by a macaw, but a nobleman of position. His son seemed undecided on whether to speak or no. Ewan spoke. "'An explanation is certainly owing to you, my lord, and by me, rather than by Lord Aveling. His manner to me a while ago was, I regret to say, quite justified by something which occurred between us in Scotland. And which, if you please, but in Aveling like lightning, I wish to remain between us, Mr. Cameron.' Oh, that is very unfortunate, observed Lord Stowe gravely, looking from one to the other. As you know, I am under a great obligation to Mr. Cameron. From his past experience of me, my lord, Lord Aveling doubts that, observed Ewan quietly. Oh, doubts it? Oh, good gad, Aveling, are you suggesting that I was drunk or dreaming this evening? No, my lord, said his son slowly. He was examining his ruffles with some absorption. Since I gave voice to my doubt, I have revised my opinion. I do not question your very real debt unto Mr. Cameron. Oh, I should hope not, said the Earl, with some severity. And, as I said before, I am extremely anxious to repay it. If I can do this by composing the difference which has arisen between you. No, you can't do that, my dear father said the young man with vivacity. Leave that out of the question now, if you will, and ask Mr. Cameron in what way you can best repay that debt. I believe I could give a very good guess at what he will reply. Ewan gave a start and looked at the speaker, upon whose lips hung something like a smile. How did Lord Aveling know? Or did he not know? Such intuition savoured almost of the supernatural, well, Mr. Cameron, what is it? inquired the Earl. In what can I attempt to serve you? You have but to name the matter. But Ewan was so bewildered at this volte face in his enemy, not to mention his uncanny perspicacity, that he remained momentarily tongue-tied. Mr. Cameron's request is not, I believe, for himself at all, said Lord Aveling softly. There is a person upon whose behalf he has done and risked a great deal. I think he wishes, if possible, to enlist you on the same side. Oh, I take it, said his father, that you are referring to the unfortunate gentleman, Mr. Cameron's kinsman, who was today condemned to death. Am I right, Mr. Cameron? Ewan bent his head. Oh, I ask too much, perhaps, my lord. He lifted it again and speech came to him, and he pleaded earnestly for commutation of the sentence, almost as though the decision had lain in Lord Stowe's hands. And surely, my lord, he finished, clemency in this case must prove to the advantage, not to the disadvantage, of the government. 
the Earl had listened with courtesy and attention. Oh, I will certainly think over what you have said, Mr. Cameron, and, if I can convince myself, from what I hear elsewhere, and that a recommendation to mercy is advisable, I will take steps in the proper quarters. Come and see me again to-morrow afternoon, if you will give yourself the trouble. Aveling, you wish me, I gather, to leave you to settle your own difference with Mr. Cameron. If you please, my lord. He smiled a little, and opened the door for his father to pass out. Oh, why did you do that? How, in God's name, and did you know? cried Ewan directly it was shut again. The dark mahogany panels behind him threw up Lord Aveling's slight, shimmering figure. It was not so difficult to read your mind, Mr. Cameron. I wish I could think that among my friends I numbered one with the same notions that you have. As to my own mind, well, and perhaps Dr. Cameron made an impression on me this morning other than I had expected, so that, and to tell truth, I half wished that you had been in time with the information which you stole from me. Ewan sat down at the table and took his head between his fists. Once more Keith Wyndham's ring glittered in the candlelight. We heard a rumour in Edinburgh who went on Aveling, and that there was one man and one man only, with Dr. Cameron when he was taken, and that he resisted desperately, and was left behind too badly hurt to be taken away by the soldiers. I began to have a suspicion who that man was. Ewan was silent. Although, you said that you arrived too late. But I do not wish to press you to incriminate yourself. Yes, you have enough against me without seeking any more, answered Ardroy, without raising his head. Oh, I think that I've wiped out that score, said Aveling reflectively. Indeed, and that I have overpaid it. He was silent for a second or two, and then went on with a very young eagerness. Mr. Cameron, I am going to ask a favour of you, which may not displease you either. Will you, as a matter of form, cross swords with me, over the table, if you prefer it, so that we may each feel that we have offered satisfaction to the other? I was too angry to know what I was saying when I refused your offer of it just now. See, I will shift the candlesticks a little. Will you do it? Ewan got up and rather moved. I shall be very glad to do it, my lord. He drew his plain steel-hilted sword. Out came the young man's elegant damascened weapon. The glittering blades went up to the salute, and then kissed for a second above the mahogany. Oh, thank you, sir, said Aveling, stepping back with a bow and sheathing again. Oh, will you forgive me now for what I said about my brother? I am well content that you should keep his ring, and I am sure that the giver would have been pleased that you refused to surrender it, even to save yourself from what I had the bad taste to threaten you with. Sword in hand, Ewan bowed. Her words, somehow, would not come. So much that was racking had happened this day, and he was not long over a convalescence. The young, delicate face, looking gravely and rather sweetly at him across the table, swam for a second in the candlelight, and when he tried to return his sword to the scabbard, he fumbled over the process. "'Oh, I can see that you are much fatigued, Mr. Cameron,' said Lord Aveling, coming round the table. 
or will you take a glass of wine with me before you go? End of section 18